It is not true that human beings are reluctant to change. It is true that we will resist at almost any cost our change in identity. Welcome everyone to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, and parent of two amazing children. Every week I do a deep dive into some of the challenging questions that face educators today, and I offer practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they're going to live in. You know, each month in our community, we tackle a specific theme, and in August, our theme is story. And so to kick things off, in this podcast, I interview Stephanie Marshall, whose life's work has been centered around the transformation of learning and schooling. Stephanie is the founding president of the National Consortium for Secondary STEM Schools, and she's a past president of ASCD. And most relevant to our conversation today, her book, The Power to Transform, Leadership That Brings Learning and Schooling to Life, is all about her work to name a new story, create a new map, and design a new landscape for life-affirming learning and schooling. Now, if you've been following our work at Modern Learners, you know that we talk a lot about being in between stories, as in the traditional story of education is really starting to break down, but we're not really clear on what the new story is. And what I found so interesting about this conversation with Stephanie is her perspective on how the story we've been telling got started and why it seems to be shifting so dramatically right now. You know, as I wrote in our latest blog post, we choose the stories that we tell about learning and schooling. We're not required to promote an old and dying narrative just because others want us to or expect us to. And to that end, the story that Stephanie tells at the end of our talk today speaks so much to the power that we have to create new narratives if we choose to do so. So just before we get to the conversation, I do want to remind you to check out MLC, our Modern Learners community, if you haven't done so already. Last week, we passed a 1,000 members from around the world, and they are having some amazing conversations and sharing their own next steps for creating classrooms where modern, engaged learning can thrive. And what I love about it is that it's a really respectful, safe space. It's kind of away from the noise of Twitter and Facebook And it gives you a place to think and engage and learn at a deep level. So head on over to modernlearners.community to join us. And when you do, you can check out the podcast topic to get more resources around my conversation with Stephanie today as well. So without further ado, though, here's my discussion with Stephanie Marshall. Enjoy, everyone. So Stephanie, thanks so much for taking some time today. I've been really interested to look back at much of the writing you've done. I've watched some of the videos that I found of your conversations on YouTube. And I think where I'd like to start is from an essay that you wrote 20 years ago now. And there's a quote in that essay where you say, to me, the kind of educational system we create is the direct result of our beliefs, assumptions, and knowledge of human learning, and the kind of mind we want to nurture for the future. And in that essay, you also wrote that current schools are grounded in, quote, false and disabling assumptions of human learning. So I'm wondering, 20 years removed from that essay, do you still think that the educational system that we have today is built on, or or is the educational system that we have today built on direct result of our beliefs, assumptions, and knowledge of human learning? And have things changed in those two decades since you wrote that? Uh, Well, I have to admit, I went back to, I had to go back and read the article to remember what I said to see if I still agree with myself. So uh, largely, uh, I do, regrettably. Um, And I think it goes back a little bit further than just beliefs and assumptions about learning. Um, Because when I wrote my, uh, my book, The Power to Transform, which was, came out in 2006, my, I had a question. It's a long question, but it was one of those questions that just wasn't going to let me go. And so even though I tried not to answer it, because I wasn't exactly sure how, I knew it was the question that I had to do work with. And so it was, 
What is it going to take to create a generative and life-affirming system of learning and schooling that liberates the goodness and genius of every child and ignites and nurtures the power and creativity of the human spirit for the world? Now, when I wrote that and then wrote the book in response to it, not to answer it, because the older I get, the less answers I have, but I have responses to everything. People said, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that we can liberate the goodness and genius of every child? Do you really believe that every child has goodness and genius? Do you re and I was, I was astonished. And so as an educator, now I started teaching in 67 and fast forward, I created an institution and went through numbers of career opportunities in education. My question was then, how did we get here? How far back did I have to go to say, where did this grounding narrative of learning come from? And I went back uh, to Isaac Newton of all things to say, how did we think the world worked? I went back to what I thought was the grounding narrative. How do we think the world worked? Because we ground as human beings, we ground our institutions in the science of our times. How we think the world works is therefore, and it makes all kinds of sense, how we think we should design human systems. So if we think the world was in the 17th, 18th century, linear and reductive, and mechanistic and parts driven and needed to be fixed and was a clockwork universe, of course we'd create assembly lines. Of course we'd create human institutions where kids and others sat in rows and boxes, of course. Because I wanted to start out in my book, not blaming, but to give people a trajectory to say, we got to this place, not because we were bad, not because we were ignorant, not because we don't care for kids, we got to this place because we design according to the science of our times, which makes total sense. And science has now changed its mind. And we haven't redesigned because we don't know that. So moving from a Newtonian clock to a living ecosystem, certainly the earth, but to a, to a system and a cosmos that's energy and potential and can't be fixed because there are no parts, then brought me to, all right, this huge disconnect between how things really work, or at least we think they do now, and how we design human systems. And the one I cared about was, of course, the system of learning and schooling, and found this enormous compatibility between reductionism and schooling, and not schooling and generativity. So I'm wondering, because it's interesting that so many people came up to you and said, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Why, why do you think they were skeptical? Why do you think that most people don't believe in the inherent potentials of children to, to learn in really deep and powerful ways and to, and to do amazing things? I think they, they believe that in relation to the children that they see right in front of them. But if we believe, which I do, that the way things are designed in the physical environment is the behaviors you get. So you design for what you want. And if you want conformity, if you want linearity, if you want reduction, if you want one size fits all, if you want kids to be seen, if you want that, that's what you design for. So within that environment, it is almost not possible to see the goodness and genius of every child built by design, it mitigates against that because we don't ask them to be brilliant and good in school. It's not relevant. I'm, I'm you know, I might be a little bit over histrionic about this, but <laughs> I think it's, no, no, I think it's more true than not. We don't see children when they're doing amazing things. As a matter of fact, when they do amazing things, we're in awe. Can you imagine She's only 13, she's only this, he's only that. Why are we dazzled and, and surprised when they do incredible things, but we're not surprised when they do something stupid? Well, of course he did that, he's a teenager for heaven's sake, he's gonna do dumb things. 
Well, yes, and not yes, but. Right. A lot of my work is is going to schools and talking with teachers and leaders about this disconnect that we have around the things that we believe and the things we do. And it's, it's, it's been fascinating for me over the last five years, because when I ask people, well, what do you believe about kids? What, what do you think are the, you know, the conditions for learning to happen in really powerful ways? They all say the same things. They all say that it has to be based on passion and interest and inquiry and time and, you know, all those things that there's this universal sense and understanding of how learning happens, but yet, then I say, well, but what are you doing in your classrooms? And, and there's this obvious disconnect between the two. And they, they kind of fall silent almost. They don't really know how to reconcile the fact that, you know, they're really not doing what they believe. So I guess the question is, for me, is how much of that do you think is simply because of this narrative that we've had for over 100 years about what school is supposed to be that's just being passed down, it seems, from generation to generation, maybe changing a little bit now. But I mean, fundamentally, I mean, it's, it's been this kind of same story that we tell. Is it just the power of history and, and the power of our own experience that, that prevents us from, from actually doing what we believe? Partly, and we do not have a new narrative. We have not replaced it with a new narrative. Right. And we were just really briefly, we were talking about Margaret Wheatley right before this. And this is one of the things that she says, too, which I think is really interesting, that we're in between this narrative. So talk more about that. I mean, what what does that mean for us right now, then? Well, I mean, for me, when I had an opportunity to create an institution from scratch after I had been in the field for 20 years and had been studying, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I realized that... I was not going to reform anything. I didn't want to fix anything. I didn't want to improve anything. I wanted to reimagine and redesign what a learning environment that would liberate goodness and genius and ignite, et cetera, et cetera, would look like. And what that would mean in terms of what children would be doing, what faculty would be doing to get with each other and with the children, what the organization would be doing, how we could do anything we wanted. It was a fundamentally new institution. So I went to uh, the, the science team. Essentially, I started there and said, I need to learn about systems. Teach me about systems. And so long story short, I grounded my work and writing and leadership in what does it mean to to lead, create in a living system, not a mechanical system, not a system bounded by externalities, but one driven by life. How would that feel and what would it look like? And what does that mean about the people that are living there? Because in a living system, as I said, you don't fix it. The, The key to living system generativity and what I would also say life affirming is relationships, not things. It's not parts. It's how things work together. It's your identity. It's, it's how you get information, how you share information, what you do, what you collect, uh, who is it for. It, it's all of those things. So it fundamentally changes the, the design, but it comes from a narrative of living systems and not a clock. It sounds very simple, And of course, it is much more complex than what I'm describing. But fundamentally, it got people thinking when I started talking about what happens in a clock and chronos time and the prediction and the certainty and what happens in a living system. Because spiders don't fix uh, a web that is broken. They reweave it. How do we become an organization of weavers? which means you're an organization of relationships and connections. And then that fundamentally, everything flows from that. You measure different things, you look for different things, you value different things. So there's, there's so much to unpack in that, right? Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, this, could, this podcast could go on for hours. You get a cup of coffee sometimes. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> or, or other things. But um, <laughs> so the, the first question that comes to my mind is, so you opted to create this environment to create that institution or that learning environment for kids. 
which we joke sometimes with people and we say, well, you know, it really is a lot easier to build it than it is to change it. And yeah. you know, there's, um, it, you know, it's hard no matter what. I mean, I'm not yeah. suggesting that it's easy to build it, but do you think it's possible to change it in a school that's been around for a long, long time? Do you yeah. think it's possible to change the narrative? Absolutely, because I think now, but it's, it's about designing the conditions to right. make it more likely that people will be open to something as squishy as, what is she talking about? A new narrative. For God's sakes, I got to teach chapter four because the kids right. are taking standardized tests. Can we talk about the story stuff later? You exactly. know, is that because the truth is there are accountabilities currently in an old paradigm. So what are some of those conditions then? So part of it is, in, so let me just let me just finish my train of thought and, I'll, and don't, sure. don't let me forget that where you asked me that question. Bringing people together to talk about how we got to a certain place and what is it that if they could change anything in relation to their own, quote, classroom, in relation to how they would want their children to behave when they do, just start with a big space of imagining, I'll put that in quotes, what would an ideal or a possibility look like that if we could figure it out, it would make things so much better for the children and better for them. And just begin to get some language out there. And I think you alluded to this in, in one, of your, uh, one of your previous podcasts. Um, and that's the lexicon. The lexicon we use in schools currently uh, far more mitigates against the kind of generativity that we're talking about um, and makes you can't write new stories with old language you just cannot so you have to create a lexicon a literally a language that we are not you know we are going to talk about purpose we are going to talk about meaning we are going to talk about relationships so when people came into my institution they would look at it and say, well, you're a high school for really talented kids. And I said, no, we're not. Well, what do you mean we're not? I said, we're a laboratory for imagination and inquiry. Well, what, what does that mean? I said, well, why don't, why don't I show you? Let's, let's go take a walk. And then, then they would stop and say, come on, you're really a high school. I said, no, 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 no. Now, and then they would say, come on, that's just really silly. I said, no, here's why it's not silly. Because if I called us a high school, you would then think you knew exactly what we did. And I would spend my entire time with you telling you that we didn't and why we didn't. Now, why would I want to do that? I'd rather, t I'd rather show you how we're a laboratory for imagination and inquiry. And that would give them a pause. I don't think that you know, the light bulbs went off instantaneously, but if you don't change the words and the language, you're not going to change anything. I mean, you, we're in transition. Things have gotten better, yes. And I think a lot of it has been the driver of technology, globalization. Uh, I also think that the future, as, as the future of work is being defined by not just the business community in the traditional sense, but the innovation ecosystem community is beginning to redefine work. You know, they're talking about what they call a VUCA environment, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, exponential change. So coupling with the digital technologies that we have and the fact that there are other narratives. I mean, that's a, that, that narrative of work is becoming a different narrative. And certainly the millennials are creating a different narrative for what they want to do and who they are and what they think is important and all of that stuff. So... I think to your question about what conditions, we need to start off by going way back and to say, in my institution, we went way back to say, who are you as a learner? How did you learn best? Just remember when you were in third grade, second grade, fifth grade, seventh grade. Where, where, what were you learning and how were you learning it? Where time stood still where you were so joyful you couldn't imagine doing anything else. And it, so you have to create conditions, first of all, to have that conversation where people don't think you're smoking something and you're just off, you know, <laughs> going off the end here. 
but really say that we're trying to create an environment for all of us to thrive. And that's a word in living system. We're a living system. So what do living systems do? They grow, they're nurtured, they're watered. The soil is making sure it's healthy. You want them to flourish, you want them to thrive. You, all of those things, that's a very different language instead of saying how we do one on our grade point average in our class rank. We don't even do GPA in my non-high school laboratory. So, um, and I'm not there anymore, but that you get the point right. of needing what needs to happen, but it's very slow because, and Meg has probably spoken to this more than most, it is not true that human beings are reluctant to change. It is true that we will resist at almost any cost our change in identity. However, if we think the change will more likely lead to us becoming more of who we are, we can change on a dime. That's another huge conversation. Yeah, yeah that, that is. And it's true. And, and one of the books we refer to all the time is, is a book by Robert Evans called The Human Side of School Change and yeah. how really it is about the individual. And when the individual is being asked to reframe their value in the system, that's when it gets really, really hard. So I just, uh, just a quick, another question on the lexicon piece, because we've also been working with a school or we have a, uh, we did a podcast with Megan Power, who's at a school called Design 39 School. And, and, and they do some interesting things. They're the only school I've ever seen, by the way, that has on their website a glossary, where literally, you, you, yeah, right, you, you click on it. And so just when they say this, this is just so you understand, this is what they mean when they say that. And, and I think they refer to their teachers as learning designers and, you know, things like that. So, I mean, do we need to go to that extent? I mean, do we need to go whole hog and just change almost all of it in terms of the language that we use, the titles of the people, you know, the way we think about the systems and the structures and the, all that stuff? Or is it enough to have a couple big confusing ideas or phrases that get people thinking hard about, um, or maybe like you said, out of their comfort zones in terms of what it is that they perceive us to be doing in the world? I think it has to be the former and it's going to take the latter to get us there. <laughs> you know, a series of, oh, come on, I'm a teacher. No, remember, we're going to, and you know, it becomes almost a joke. Right. Oh, I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm on the board of a, of a very large corporation. And about three years ago, one of the board members said, all right, we're done. And I said, okay, we're done what? We are done calling our employees, employees. Really? Okay, so what do you want to call them? Associates. Well, it took us a long time. We'd, say, we'd be at a board meeting and someone would say, we've got to do that for our employees. And he would stand up. He'd say, no, not the word, associates. And then we'd sit down and then we'd have our conversation. Okay, that's just him. But now, what happened in the institution was amazing because associates don't feel like cogs in a big corporation. They feel like partners. And so it's not just changing the language, it's the narrative behind why the language is changed. And that's a journey, you know, that's a, all this stuff is, you know, I don't want to call it soft. I mean, I'm, I so wish we could come up with another word for the hard skills and the soft skills, because we know the soft skills are the hardest of all, because they make us vulnerable. And until we are vulnerable to disruption and to being unsettled and uncertain, we're going to cling to an identity that diminishes who we really are and makes it much less possible except in idiosyncratic ways or just outliers of things to really thrive in the best sense of the world. I want to take a quick break from our conversation and let you know about what I think is the most powerful professional learning destination for educators online. And that's our Modern Learners Community Plus. You know, at a time when change is accelerating, when social media is getting increasingly toxic, and when we're faced with big questions in education that demand serious answers, 
MLC Plus offers a safe, respectful, intelligent space on the web to help you make sense of what to do next. MLC Plus is about community. We're building a movement to change the experience of schooling for kids around the world to better prepare them for the world today. And our community builds our collective and individual capacity to do that. MLC Plus is about challenge. Our carefully selected links and theme-driven conversations are meant to push your thinking, to get you to scrutinize your practice, and to catalyze your journey to reimagine education and schooling. But most of all, MLC Plus is about learning. Through our diverse book studies, live coaching sessions with the Modern Learners team, our special workshops and master classes, your learning doesn't have to stop. And since all of our interactions are archived for later viewing, it's your learning on your schedule. So if you're looking for a more quality conversation with a global lens within a passionate community of educators, all in one respectful, easy to access, time-saving space, it doesn't get much better than MLC+. Head on over to modernlearners.community right now and let's change the story of education for the modern world together. And now, back to the conversation. So I'm wondering if you have any specific suggestions for helping school leaders uh, to help their, their teachers or their learning designers, whatever you want to call them, to negotiate that shift. I mean, much of this obviously speaks to culture. Much of this obviously speaks to a, a sense of trust and safety and, and all of those things that need to be present for people to explore a different identity even. So are there any specific things that people could do to just create a more comfortable path for people who are, are trying again to kind of renegotiate their value and, and their, their identity within a school system. Yeah. And I would, I'll just name some things because it is a longer conversation. I'm not sure I'd use the word negotiate. And I know I wouldn't use the word comfortable because we're not negotiating. We're living into our possibility of who we really are. And it's not comfortable because we are changing how we have operated in the world and what we thought was true and all those kinds. So I think we, and that's why you're, you're absolutely right. It is so, so much easier in some ways to create something from scratch. Although, right. although all of us came from other places in, in quote, real schools. So we weren't coming with, a, you know, nothing in our brains we were coming with an external blank, blank slate that said bring, and I was fortunately able to hire people to a new narrative, which I did in an interview, you know. Um, so that made it. The, the frame that I have used, and I'm working with two, two remarkable guys on a, on a book, we're about halfway done, it's called The Living School, and it's really grounded in, in uh, human systems and living systems is really to step back to say, uh, what are the components? And a lot of this is also derived from Meg's much earlier work, but it's still kind of a construct she holds. What are the domains and phenomenon of living systems? And what are the dynamics? And can we look at them and how are they useful? It's not to impose another rigid framework, but it's to use these dynamics and phenomenon of living systems as containers for conversations. So identity, information, relationships. I'll come back to that. Those are sort of the, the organizing frames of any living system, whether it's a cell or us, uh, structures, processes, patterns. So if we have a conversation about these within an organization and then say, all right, let's talk about what's, the what's our identity? What's the meaning? What's our purpose? What's our mission? What are our values? How do we, what are our beliefs? That's all part of the identity of an organization. That takes a long time. In my institution, it took a long time for us to articulate and fight over though. I mean, just a belief statement for someone to say, well, I believe this. And then our very skilled facilitator said, um, uh, why? Well, because I believe that. Why? Well, because I believe that and you know you keep peeling away the onion until you get to the the after maybe 10 times whatever it is and the person said and so i believe that and the facilitator says why and the person says because that's what i believe 
then you have a belief statement. But do you see how long you have to go through that? And then those all went to the community for them to have a conversation about this. Do we actually believe that as an organization? Meaning, I'll give you an example. Meaning is created, not prescribed. A belief statement of the institution. Now it sounds really simple, but is then you say, well, you've got a design for that. What does that mean? Well, you, you, you're nodding your head because I know you know how that plays out with children. It's the meaning is created by them, not by me telling you what this, what this means. And so it's a journey and it is disruptive. And you come out of it more whole, more clear, more resolute, more confident. So we talk about agency with kids. Um, the same is true for educators. They're sort of tenuous now. You know, we've had no child left behind and then we had Lord knows all the other things we had and they're being buffeted about and they really, really want to do what children need and they cannot, or it's very difficult to do that uh, unless they're subversive, which I was as an educator for probably the first 10 years at least. I, I was almost fired every year. Um, and um, they could not argue with the dazzling achievements of the children because they were who they are. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we create a new story, and I just want to say too, you know, I was nodding my head there because our experience has been that so few districts actually have articulated what they believe. Um, and there is no real, there is no real grounding or center that they can map their practice or their decisions back to. And it's, it's kind oh. of interesting how random actually the work becomes if you don't have that rooted, if you're not rooted in, in a belief system and a value system like that. So if we can go through a process that gets us to a better place, that gets us to a living system of learning in schools, how do we ensure that that kind of system becomes equitable to all children? Because, you know, obviously a lot of the innovation that's happening in schools these days is happening in places that have means that are pretty, zip codes are pretty wealthy, et cetera. I mean, a lot of independent schools, things like that. How do we bring a different narrative that's based on our beliefs to every child? There are some that would say, uh, certainly in the old paradigm, but even, even now with, with unfortunately the exacerbated racism that we see out there, um, there is a narrative that uh, a certain group of children can learn well and a certain group right. of children can't. There are those that say the certain group of children who can't learn well it's not that they can't, they don't, because the situation in which they are in, under-resourced and lack of opportunity implicates against that, and that, that's true. So um, at, at some point, well, so there are always multiple, there's a, probably a meta-narrative, which is who are we as human beings? Are our potentials limited? Is the mind-brain, you know, are we, are, are we living in a narrative of abundance or are we living in a narrative of scarcity? Right now we're living in a narrative of scarcity. Um, it's only abundant for some. So that's not a meta right. But right. you're really going to live into um, a narrative that's far more truthful. You have to make changes relative to lots. Of it. There, the, the issue is not the narrative because we, we have to be clear about that. The issue is how it's manifested in the design. So, um, and it's, I think we all recognize that the most under-resourced schools are the ones that are the least likely, I'm making a generalization here, uh, provide the least opportunities for creative exploration and agency and innovation and access to some of the dazzling uses of technology. Um, they're under-resourced in every way, and I would say they are oppressed, I'll put that in quotes, under a narrative, they probably couldn't excel that far anyway. I mean, that's a real, that's a much more difficult narrative to change. Um, I student taught in Harlem, in New York City, and because of a very unusual situation, um, 
teacher was out for a, a bit and I just, as a student teacher, I was a student teacher, I had to take over the class. And I was uh, in that very short period of time that I was the only one in the room, I saw a fundamentally different group of children. Who, whatever, whoever I saw while they were with that teacher and the acting out that I saw, so we walked eight flights of stairs almost every day as a punishment. When she was gone and I became their teacher, um, they, they became different children. So, you know, so I, I have in my head a narrative. Of, so that's hard to, hard to do because I see, and that's sort of been how I feel so deeply about this. And, and I, I think you obviously do too, because we have seen what happens to children when they are allowed to be fully who they are. Now, that doesn't mean we are cavalier. There are competencies, there are expectations, there are experiences we want them to have. Uh, you know, when, when I had a group of students come to me the first week of the creation of this institution, which is a residential public institution in Illinois, and saying, we want to know how you know, how you will know that this is, that the school has been the ECS word, um, that how, how we would be successful. How would you know if we would be successful? And I said, that's a great question but it's 11 o'clock, you need to go to bed and I need to go home, I'm really tired. No, Dr. Marshall, we wanted your answer. So I said, okay, pretend we're, we're in a gymnasium and we have all these students there, some you know, from, from our, our place and other places, and we give you a very complex problem and you have to solve it. We have people, experts who look at children and their behavior and I can pick you out because I can see how you collaborate. I listen to the questions you ask. I see how you work together. I see how you divide up and you say, you do that, you do that. I made this all up, it was 11 o'clock. But the point was, it was, I want to be able to pick you out as the learner and a problem solver. I can identify those behaviors. And they said, oh, good answer, good night. And they went off. <laughs> well, fast forward, over time, they became our standards of significant learning. I wanna be able to pick out the children. So you look at someone like Greta Thunberg right now, and she's sort yes. of the quintessential model of that's what they can look like. We, we raise her up as if she is an, an, an anachronism, which she is unfortunately right now. And do I think children, you know, tons more children can do that? Of course, of course we do. It is a challenging question because I think we, yeah. all, we all, when we think hard about how we align our beliefs to our practice, yeah. In some ways, it's a much easier vision. It's a much, it's a much clearer vision, obviously, because then we're not trying to do something that we don't really believe in. We're, it's not like we're forced to do things that don't comport with our belief system. And I think for every child, given an opportunity to exist in a culture where learning really is at the center, where we're valuing them as individuals, where we, we celebrate their potentials on a daily basis, I think that's just better for every child. And it should be easier to make that equitable than to try to get every kid to read by grade level when they've never read a book or they've never had a book read to them. You know what I'm saying? To make up for the deficits that they come from. And that's the tension because grade level and what you right. describe as living up to their potential are not connected. Where did we say that just because you're eight, you're in third grade? Where did we say that just because you're seven, you're in second grade? Where right. did we... All of that is made up. And that's what I say to people is that, guys, don't think that the current design is chiseled in stone. It is in our minds, it is. But no, nowhere is it written. We made it up, but we made it up not because we were bad or ignorant or lazy. We made it up because that's how we thought the world worked and now we know it doesn't. So let's make up something. Mean, you started off with talking reimagine and redesign, AKA make it up, make up something different, but it's aligned with what we know about the science, what we know about living systems, what we know about neuroplasticity, what we know about neuroeducation, what we know about potentials. 
Now we know this multiple intelligence is not one. We could make a list of schools are designed with a certain kind of mind brain, what we understood about how the brain worked and how learning happens, wrong. No, it's not, it's not how it works and right. how it happens. So, I mean, and I think that part of the stress of the profession is exactly what you said. Know what to do and they feel they have to do something else. So I have always challenged people if these are the expectations, and I'm not, I'm just saying, but let's say we buy the expectations or the competencies, go meet with your, all the third grade teachers, go meet with all the second, you as a teacher decide, we've got to make sure our kids get this, but can we do it in a way that they will really enjoy it? You know, figure it out, make up something else, but don't change the accountability for now. Don't change, you know, that's another conversation. <laughs> yeah. another conversation about how you measure it and what you got all of that stuff I, you know this is very complex uh, and yeah. I think one, one of the one of the biggest challenges too is how you build the capacity of parents and community members to not see make it up as a risk because you know it doesn't it doesn't look like what they experience it's not what they it's not the story in their head so when we when we do something different they say well it's my kid going to be okay? Are they still going to get into college? Are they still going to do all of that? And so it takes a lot of time to build the capacity. Well, and that was when we started this institution, it goes back now 30 years. We just had our 30th reunion. That was the first question of the, of the parents. You're a brand new kid on the block. Well, could my kid get into Harvard? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> we don't do grade point average in class rank, but I'll tell you what I will do. We will send to, I will have all our admission people Go to the colleges that you think you want your kids to go to and sit down with them and go through our standards of significant learning, which are really habits of mind of integrative ways of knowing. That's right. how we do it. And then bring with them the research and the stuff, the production, the, the products that your children have done and say to them, all right, we're new. We don't have this grade. We don't have this grade. Our kids don't take that. Okay. But here are our standards that they have to meet. And here's the work they, they've done. Would you take them and every institution, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, said in a heartbeat. But we had to do that because the parents, right. it's not trivial. It's not right. trivial. Right. But we weren't, you know, it's the both and. I really think we have to figure out how to have the both and conversation. We're not throwing out babies in bathwaters. We want our kids to be knowledgeable and insightful and, and all the, and the, and, and know what they're talking about and innovative and risk takers and all of that. And a schooling system in a nation is also a moral enterprise. So it's been a fascinating conversation and I, I wanna finish up just on one last point and it relates to a, a blog post that we published today in fact, which is titled, uh, We Choose the Stories That We Tell. And, and you tell a very interesting story in your book and you call it the gift and the firestorm. And I was just wondering if you could tell that story, because I think it's such a great example of what our blog post is about, which is, you know, we really do have a choice as to how we narrate the things that happen in our school and how we align those to our beliefs and to our commitments. And I'd love it if you just could tell that story. I'll try to tell it yeah, quickly. Uh, so um, my grounding in story uh, and narrative and landscape uh, came from my uh, transformational trip to the outback of Australia and walking song lines with Aboriginal elders. So I hold that as a, uh, a construct. But the gift and the firestorm, we had uh, the admission staff uh, had admitted a group of students that should not have been admitted. They made a mistake. And they sent a letter out to these 32 kids saying, welcome to the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy. And they realized they had made a mistake. The kids were on a waiting list, but they had not been admitted. And so they, they came to my office, I, I'm the president, and they said, we made a horrible mistake. We're not gonna blame it on anybody. We screwed up. Um, and so we're gonna write to every parent. We're gonna call them. We're gonna apologize. And I said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Our name is on this letter. We said, welcome to the Illinois Math and Science Academy. They are coming. And it was like, I, I, I cannot, anyway, 
Um, so it, it went through the community like absolute wildfire. And there were two camps that emerged. Those who said, we are so proud of the administration. The kids will have such an incredible opportunity. We've lived up to our commitment. We signed our name and the notion of name signing became a metaphor in the institution. When you sign your name, you make a commitment. It's a vow, that's what it is. And then the other camp was, she never consulted us. We're gonna, we're gonna unionize. They never, she never listens to us ever. How could she <laughs> our opinion? And so I asked one of my colleagues to step back. I said, I gotta know what's going on. I just, I know there's tension. So write down everything you hear, but don't tell me who said it, but just tell me the category. Tell me if it was a faculty member who said, this was fantastic, I'm so proud, or I'm gonna recommend a union. Uh, secretary, custodian, everybody in the institution, write down whatever it is you hear. And she gave me, and she did. And so I got pages and pages, I wanna say like 10 or 20 pages of comments, and I read them, and these two patterns emerged. And that's another thing of leaders in the living system. You have to be, you have to stand above the noise to see the patterns because that's the story. If you do not, if you, if you are inextricably in the noise, you will never see the patterns. So you will ne never discern the story. So I had to, it's just like in an airplane, you don't see, you see, you don't see the Northwest ordinance until you're at 30,000, 38,000 feet. You look down and say, oh, that's how they did it. Right. When you're in, there's nothing. So two patterns emerge, firestorm and gift. It's, you know, the people who saw it, what a gift to these children and the other one saying, we are now going to be in deep trouble. And so this goes back 20 some odd years. We just had transparencies. I didn't have a video production. I made two transparencies and put them on two overhead projectors and said, here's what happened. You know, Connie went around, she got all your comments. I saw the patterns. They were so clear, two emergent, firestorm and gift. And so I made a picture of a great big gift box with a huge bow and around that, just like a cartoon, I had all the good things. They're so proud of me, the kids are so lucky, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the other one I, I drew, and I drew all these, you know, the, the, uh, the, the fire and all these negative comments. And I said, you can't know that there are two stories that are being written right now because you didn't see them. I could because I had all the comments and I looked down and I used the airplane. So right now there are two narratives going on here. You have no way of knowing that you only knew you were telling your narrative. You didn't know about the other one. But now you have both of them. We are going to live into one. You choose. And so the conversation started. And the, the people who were the gift came to me and said, this is, you, you have no idea. And I had, I don't know how old the institution was then, not, not super old, but they said, this is the greatest gift you've ever given us because now we don't have to get into an argument. If a firestorm person says to us, this is a bit, you know, whatever, all we have to do is say, you're living into the firestorm and I've chosen the gift. And it's the end of the conversation. I thought, oh my God. So the power of story, I didn't have to mandate anything. I didn't have to threaten with right. anything. I didn't have to say, if you're gonna do a union, I'll make sure you do it. Nothing two goofy overheads with a gift box and a fire <laughs> and who choose because the stories are being written. They are there in every living system, but they're under the surface. It's, it's, what, the, it's what the Greeks call understory. You know, the overstory is we admitted the kids. The understory is always called the journey of the soul of the main character. And what I was asking them to do is to choose who they wanted to be together going forward in the institution. And they chose the gift. And then we said, how will we make sure we live the gift story? And the faculty came back and said, we don't want to know who the kids are. It was brilliant. We, awesome. don't, want, we don't want to know. So I mean, 
it's just yeah it's just a brilliant story and and again the the we have control if we take it and and i think that a lot of people forget that or a lot of people don't don't know that they're constantly reacting to other people's opinions or or perceptions or whatever else when they they could be spending a, uh, their time a lot better crafting those narratives and making sure that they do come from the school community as a whole and then and then working really hard to make sure that those are the stories that are being told so it's a it's a great story i mean and and the truth of the matter is i don't know what i would have done (laughs) but you kind of knew i kind of sense i think i probably it doesn't matter what i would have done i didn't have to do it yeah one of those things when you, if you authentically ask someone to choose, you yeah. have to, you got it. It's pretty scary. There was an element of trust that you there had in them to, to right. make the right choice, right? And then teachers are going to choose the gift all the time. I think I just I really believe that. But well, listen, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time for this. A great. really great conversation. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for for helping us understand this a little bit more deeply. It was fun. Thank you. So what do you do now after listening to everything that Stephanie had to say? Well, I've got three suggestions for you. First, figure out what story you're currently telling. You know, as we help our participants in Change School to do, try to take a detached tour around your school and really look at what your hallways and classrooms and facilities are speaking about what you think learning is. And then ask yourself, what does what you're seeing say about what you believe about learning? Second, get some students and teachers and parents and others together and spend a couple of hours around the question, if we could tell any story about learning in this school community, what would it be? See what kind of aspirational story you might write. And finally, don't forget to listen to our other three podcasts around story this month. Next week, I'll be focusing on why exactly the story of education is changing with Brian Alexander, an internationally known futurist and educator who is currently a senior scholar at Georgetown University and the author of the forthcoming book, Academia Next, The Futures of Higher Education, due out this fall. And I can promise you our conversation will stoke your thinking about story even more. Until then, I really hope you click over to modernlearners.community and keep this conversation going. Cheers, everyone, and thanks so much for listening.